this psalm is written about the King of Glory. It's a powerful psalm that celebrates our great Lord and King Jesus Christ. There's kind of a passage to me that, that kind of speaks of this in the New Testament uh, that I think maybe is helpful just to hear. It's kind of a small hymn, many people say. And it's in 1 Timothy 3.16. It says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Jesus' ministry presented here, I think, is pointing to the arrival of the King of glory into the heavenly Jerusalem where he sat down and is reigning now after defeating all of his enemies. You know, some people would look at this psalm and think of uh, David, and they might even say this was a time when maybe he brought the Ark of the Covenant back, the, what was to be presented as a presence of God back into, the, uh, the, into Jerusalem. And when he brought it back into Jerusalem, there was kind of this, this festive kind of celebration. And maybe this was the case, and maybe this was the case here, but at the same time, I think it points even further to the Lord Jesus Christ. You're going to look at this psalm, and see three sections. Uh, section number one is verses one and two, and we see really how we should um, praise our Creator God. Section number two is verses three through six, and this one might be, you could say, how we should praise our holy God, and then verses seven through ten, our warrior God. And so you three, see these three sections, we will move through them, and hopefully it will help you uh, understand maybe more fully uh, what is taking place. Now, one last thing just to say is if it was kind of initially something where they were celebrating what happened with uh, David as they entered in with this, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence among his people, how much more than would John 14, 1.14 where it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory uh, as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So either way, I think when you look at this psalm, you do need to be thinking not only of what the original context was, but also looking forward to understanding more fully how Christ embodies this. He is truly the King of glory. So let's start in verses 1 and 2, and we'll, we see how we're kind of led to praise the Creator God, acknowledging uh, His creation. In verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. God is a creator of the universe. That, that, that's, that is something we just have to stop and acknowledge. That means He owns it. He owns every bit of it. It is His Anyone who lays claim on anything in this world must understand that it's not truly theirs. I, I always, when I was a kid, I would watch uh, different like westerns and stuff, and they and sometimes it would be there would be kind of this thing of the gold rush, and people would run their horses out and they would you know stick a stake in the ground to say this is my land, I, it's it's mine, I, I I have it. It's interesting. Even today, you might look at your portfolio and you might say, oh, I own this piece of land or this piece of property or I own this house or I have this much in stocks or 
whatever. And we kind of begin to calculate that. And sometimes even if we're going to purchase something, they'll ask you, like, let me see all of your assets. And you have to bring those up there and, and, and lay all that out. And they look at it and decide on whether or not they'll give you a loan or whatever it might be. But here, when we're looking at this, I think it's important that you say, in, in, in a very real sense, we have to constantly tell ourselves, this is not ours. I mean, we may have been entrusted with it here. We, we are stewards of it, but we don't really own it. As you know, you, even in the scripture, we'll see uh, naked I came into this world and naked I will leave it. I, I'm not taking, I mean, this is just, I'm temporarily entrusted with certain things given just a little bit of that. Now, in my house, I hear all the time, mine. This is mine. You know, it's like, it, it, it's, you're just like, oh, okay. And it'll be some little small toy. Mine. You know, and it, that's not nice. It's mine. You know, and it's constantly going on. And then like five minutes later, that little item is forgotten. But then when you get to be an adult, you'll be like, mine. It's a little bit bigger. And five minutes later, it's forgotten, kind of. And it's interesting for us, I think, a lot of times where we're looking at all of that, we have to really be careful to say, the only person who can say mine is the Lord. It's all mine. And the problem with us sometimes, I think, is the more we have, the more we, you know, in this life, I think the more maybe we want to protect it. And it can begin to really, I mean, we have to be careful, and myself included, where it owns us rather than we kind of steward it, you know. And so I just think it's important to see that God can say that. He can say that very clearly. Now, the other thing I think is important to see in this, this passage, chapter 24, when you're looking at that and you're saying we're talking about the king of glory, one of the things just kind of comes to us, I think, is we have to say, okay, like, who is this king of glory? One thing we can see about, he is creator of all. John 1, 1 through 3 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing, <clears throat> without him was not anything made that was made. This is speaking of Jesus. And you keep going, Colossians 1, 15 through 16. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all of creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. You keep moving. The New Testament keeps speaking this to us. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So guess what? The king of glory. He is also, he's the creator of all. He, he owns all. Like, it's his. And so I think it's just important for us to stop and consider he has it all, he owns it all, and that therefore, like not only does he own the created world, he owns you. Like you'll give an account to him. That's one of the biggest things in the world. You may like get away with a bunch of junk in this world. You may get away with a bunch of stuff in your house. But there's one day you're going to meet the one who created this world and you stand before him. And you will give an account for your life. And so we stop and consider we must praise this great king of glory 
for he is the creator and owner of everything. Okay. Second thing, we praise the, the holy God and you could again put in there the king of glory hearing his challenge. Now, notice what happens. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who will stand in the holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Okay, so so this is just another thing where it's like, okay, let's stop for a minute. He owns everything. Now, who can come to him? If he is this awesome, great and holy God, like who can enter his presence? He is the eternal uh, you know, he, he is infinite. He, he is all holy, completely holy. It's in every aspect of his character. And then the question becomes like, well, then who could come before him? How in the world could anyone stand in his presence? So then you see, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Now, there's another passage. I want you to turn there real quick. Turn to Psalm 15. A lot of people say it's kind of companion to this, to this text here. And in, in Psalm 15, it says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Who, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor take up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does... And does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. So there's kind of this picture here where you're saying, like, who is actually worthy of coming into the presence of the Lord? That's that's kind of the big question here. Now, notice what it says. First, he must have clean hands. What does that mean? His actions. It's what's done with his hands. They must be right. That's a big issue there. Just like, can, does he have clean hands? Sometimes there's, a, there's passages where it talks about like not having blood on your hands. Right? But I think first thing you just say, he must have clean hands. It must be that he has not dirtied them. He must have a pure heart. This is kind of right attitude, free from impure thoughts. So it's not just like, and deals with motives. So like sometimes you could be out on the outside, people be like, that's a good dude right there. He's a pretty good guy. But internally, there, there's things going on in his heart. He may have learned, and we've talked about this before, learn to play the game of life by kind of doing everything right even though his heart's like way away from what he's doing. Third, he must not worship an idol. Now, here's the thing. If you, you might meet somebody, and I have, man, I've met some really good people that are really like religious, but they do not worship the one true and living God. You know what I'm saying? Like they, You could say, like, hey, man, they, they've lived a good life. Their words, their actions. Even you might, I mean, even you might say, in some ways, their hearts are good. You hear people say, I mean, we would fight against that a little bit. But their hearts are good, like they're in the right place. But they worship the wrong thing. 
they worship like a false god. I remember at a young age one time I was watching television. It may have been like a National Geographic. And there was this guy. For hours he had been doing it. And he looked like he had been. But he was like kind of like dealing with his sins. So you know what he did? He laid on the ground and he began to roll. And he was dirty and like kind of bloody and nasty. And he had been rolling for hours to kind of deal with all his sins, right? And I was like, what is he doing? Well, he was trying to get things right with this deity and this kind of whole system. And he was rolling himself on the ground. He had, maybe you could say, maybe people would even say, man, he's really religious. But he was worshiping an idol, Notice for he must not swear by what is false. There's no deception there. Truth is critical. False motives and deception here really are, are kind of the issue that's going to take place. Now, there is a passage. Now, this is kind of come back with me if you kind of. There is a passage in Matthew 548 in the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe some of you have studied that, but you kind of know Jesus presents like a vision of perfection and there's a place in Matthew 5.48 where it says, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? In the context of the Sermon on the Mount, here's what happens. He, he deals with right heart and right actions being united perfectly. That's what it means to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It is that in your attitudes and your actions, they run together where you're always doing what is right. In a perfect way. And, and I don't think when we read the Sermon on the Mount, we, we shouldn't say, oh, well, that's no big deal. Well, I mean, we should really consider that and think about where our heart is and what we're doing and what we're doing it for and all of those things. But here's the thing. This is where Christianity I had one of the guys this morning say, preach the gospel, preach the gospel. I, here's where Christianity is, is, is very important. It says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And it gives us this vision. But the one who says that, guess what happens? Later in that same gospel, he dies on the cross. The one calling for perfection is actually the one living the perfect life and dying the death that we deserve. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's what we have to understand. So we are certainly like facing this and seeing that we don't live up to it. But then we're asking ourselves, then who in the world could? Who is worthy? That's what John asked in the Revelation. Who is worthy to enter in? Jesus said of himself, I glorified you on this earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do perfectly. Peter said of Jesus, he committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. The Bible tells us that there's none righteous, not even one, except for Jesus. He perfectly embodied these things. He who was the eternal God came to this earth and became a man. And he walked among us, living the life that we could not live and dying the death that we deserved. Romans 5, 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, being united to Him. 
we become clean in him so that we can become expectantly into the presence of God. Romans 5, 2 says, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Meaning access into the presence of God. Who can come up to the holy hill? Who can enter into his presence? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. He doesn't lift himself up to falsehood. Where is that person? Where is that person that perfectly does that? Again, I'm not saying that that's not a vision set before us, but who really actually does that? You you tell me one biblical character where you can walk through and say, he seems to perfectly do that. People over and over, you say, well, it looks like the Bible shows a bunch of like black eyes, you know, a bunch of dirty stuff, a bunch of broken stuff. What's going on there? And I think the reality is we have to say there is only one. And I think that's what the scripture drives us to. Now, verses five and six. The one who has the clean hands and the pure heart. What does he receive? He received blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such as a generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. You'll notice in verses 5 and 6, these blessings. He receives blessing from the Lord. It's a gift from the Lord. Some of you may have grown up in churches where they would often read that in number 6, the priestly prayer, uh, the Lord bless you and keep you. Cause His face to shine upon you. Give you peace. You know, it's kind of laid out there. And it's one of those things where it is. It's one of those things to be under the blessing of God. It's such a powerful thing. Hebrews 10 says, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We have this great high priest who has cleansed us, is the idea. Who has made us right with him. And so let's come receiving that blessing. The whole picture here, I think, is that we're united to the Lord and we experience his blessing. Second, and righteousness. It's kind of the idea of of, a right standing with him or vindication. Sometimes in this life, you'll have people where where you think, man, they've went through so many difficult things, but ultimately they'll be vindicated. And that's kind of the picture in the church is that ultimately you will be vindicated. Ultimately, you will stand in the presence of God. He will you will be accepted. Why will I be accepted? Because of the righteousness of Christ. That certainly is one of the big emphases of the New Testament. Third, those who seek him. uh, who seek his face again that longing to see him that those who seek his face are those who are, who are who are really wanting to live in a way that would be pleasing to the lord guess what they will see him they will and so i think psalm 24 as you move through it you start out and you say the lord owns it all and then you you say he's this great and magnificent god who made it all And we owe our allegiance to him. And then so the question is, well, then how can we be in the presence of a God like this? How in the world could you ever be in his presence? Well, you have to be perfect to be in his presence. And then you say, well, good night. Who's perfect? 
who in the world could could really experience uh, his presence? Because like when I look around, I think inside of me, outside of me, all around me, I think no one is truly worthy than who is worthy. And I believe it is the king of glory. And you see that, I believe, very clearly on display. Third, we would praise God, the warrior God, seeing his coming. I think this is pointing to, again, ultimately pointing. In the early church, I read some things this week where they believe this. This is really ultimately pointing to the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ when he took his seat in heaven. Hebrews 12.22 says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in feastal gathering. It's, it's kind of this idea of his ascension in where he is, is coming into the presence of God after securing victory for his people. So you kind of have this picture of, I created and owned everything, but there's a problem. These people are, they must come in perfect. So he left heaven and came to earth and lived out what they were to live out. And then he was victorious, uh, defeating sin, death, hell, and the grave. He ascends into heaven, and as he comes there, this is on display. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. So again, here, I think it's very important for us that we see that with the eyes of faith, you stop and consider who is this king? Who is the king that has secured victory? Who who is he? Sometimes I think we need to stop and get it in our minds, get a vision of what Christ did and really what that means for us. With the eyes of faith, I think we have to ask, who is it? Why why can he be welcomed in? Who is he? Now, it says the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. He is a warrior God. And sometimes, and and I've talked to different people about it and, and heard people discuss it, but people have this idea of Jesus as just walking around mildly, like just kind of, uh, quietly and soft-spoken and the kids come up and they hug him and all and and they, and they have that vision and that's there certainly presented in the bible but they don't think about him as a warrior they don't look at him that way and when we studied the revelation we said no he is a warrior king he is reigning king he loves his people but he loves them so much that he goes and fights the greatest enemy of all And so when we see that, I think it's important that you understand that he is strong and mighty. He is someone who must be feared. There's something about him. We looked at the Revelation. I remember there was a time where it's like uh, we we said, like, he he is wonderful. But but at the same time, like there's this this idea where you're saying, like, but but I can't just kind of interrupt to him, like, in a way that's like nonchalant, like he's king. He is Lord. There's something about him. That should strike fear in your heart. Because he is the king of glory. Now, we see him there, the mighty king. It's just saying he has won the victory. He has defeated all of our enemies. He is, he is the one that we can trust. He has been victorious over all. Now, turn to your Bible real quick to 1 Peter 3. And I want you to see something because I think it's important to see it. 
As you turn there, uh, one author said, start the battle and when the dust settles, he will be victorious over death, hell and the grave. Like it might be crazy and frightening and all that's taking place, but when the dust settles, he's victorious. First Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, there's a lot of things to think about that, but I want you to see a couple of things. First, Jesus defeated sin. Right? Second, he defeated death. Third, he defeated hell. You see those? And you go to verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. He is Lord of everything. He's been victorious over all. There's nothing outside of his reign and control. Who is the king of glory? Who, who is it? He's the victorious one. Victorious over what? Victorious over sin, death, hell, and he's victorious over all. He reigns over all of it. So you keep moving forward and go back to the psalm and we say, again, lift up your heads, O gates. It's like, tear open the doors like he's coming in. Like, do everything you can. Like, you've got to make room for Him. He is the most powerful King of glory. Make room. Like, open up everything. He's shown up. He's been victorious over all. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Again, stopping there. And it's saying, what, what is it? The Lord of hosts. The Lord of the armies. It's, it's a presenting again, the victorious Lord who reigns over all. It, it's almost like you're saying, look, He's the true holy warrior who has went and with all the might and powerful uh, authority that you could ever imagine, He has defeated and won victory and he has completely done so. You saw that. Remember, he was crucified, buried, and on the third day he rose again from the dead. This is the king of glory. Once he did, he prepped his troops for like 40 days. He ascends into heaven. He is greeted there, as we see. And he sends the Spirit down to be with his people. So, just go back through this section, or through this, this chapter. And I think when you look at it, you say, you start out and you say, He owns everything. <laughs> he created everything, He owns everything. To be in His presence, to be in the Lord's presence requires perfection. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, became man. He dwelt among he, he dwelt among us. He lived that life, the perfect life. He died on the cross. He was crucified, buried, rose again. He ascends into heaven as victorious king. He is welcomed in. So what would that say to us? What would that say to us, I think, today is this. One, 
Do you know him? I mean, that, that's a big question. Do you know the king of glory? Do you know the one who created everything, rescued it, and now reigns over it all? And then will return one day to, to finish everything that he started in his first coming, will be completed in his second. Do you know him? Do you truly know him? You, you may, listen, you may have lived your whole life understanding a little bit of that message, but it never, the light bulb never came on. I mean, that, that is a reality. I've known people who sat under some kind of picture of the gospel for like 20 years, and then one day, all of a sudden, they heard this, and they thought, hold on just a second, this is true. For the very first time in their life, it's true. I remember when I was in college uh, at the age of like somewhere around 18 or 19, uh, and I don't, know, I don't know what to do with all this, but at age 10, I, I, I do kind of think, oh, I, I believe the gospel. I, you know, but then at age 19 in there, somewhere in there, I realized like that I actually, not just my parents' faith, but I actually came to a place where that faith became my faith in a, in a very powerful way. Again, I don't know what you say I'm converted at 10 or 19. I, I don't know if I can answer all that. I'm not as worried about answering all that. But I do know there was a place where I realized that these things were, I had to come to a place where it's like, is this true or is it false? And at that point, I remember those days were very powerful days in my life where I understood who he was he, uh, he, the, the, he created me, he owned me, he died for me, he reigns now. If I do not align myself with him, I have no hope. But if I do, there is hope everlasting. There, there's a place where at some level that could happen in your life. And, and so I don't, you may be that person this morning where you may have not ever come to a place where you have been united to him by faith. And so therefore... When, 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 when it comes time to stand before him at the holy hill, where it comes time to stand before a holy God, you will face judgment rather than blessing. Because you have not united yourself to the one who, perfectly, who has perfectly lived the life that you could never live. Again, and died the death that you deserve. So, so for you today, it might be for the very first time in your life, you've come to that realization. Or you may have said, like, I've come to that place, but it's just been a while since I've really thought about the wonder of it all. I just, I want to I return to a place where I see my God as the creator of the universe, as the one who's rescued me, and I want to live a life that's pleasing to Him. And I, and I, and I want, I want to, to get a vision of Him reigning over the whole world, the whole earth, and see him for who he is, and even long for his return. I don't know where you might be this morning, but wherever you are, I would just say to you, the, the kind of the admonition of this is to join in worship, to join in. Anna was reading an article, and she kind of put it on face, posted it on Facebook or shared it or whatever, but it was about having your children in worship with you. We try to get our kids in at around age four. And, and, and have them come to worship with you and, and watch you, observe you, observe you celebrate the King of glory, observe you lifting up him like what they see. Sometimes people think sometimes the best thing you can do is just put somebody in a classroom. But you know what? 
one of the most powerful things you can do is allow them to see you and imitate you in your worship of the King of Glory. So I encourage you today to to be reminded of that as we um, conclude our time. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you give us wisdom and direction so that we might see and, and savor and grasp the wonder of the Christ, the King of Glory, who is now reigning in heaven, interceding on behalf of us, who will one day return and every eye will see him. May we be people who treasure our great Lord and King, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.